Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles and uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, uh, page 1512 or so, 16, uh, if you're in the the Bible that I'm in and the few back in front of you. Matthew chapter 12 is where we are going to uh, hunker down this morning as we continue in our uh, sermon series, ongoing sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew entitled The King and His Kingdom. This morning we'll begin with part one, taking a a look at uh, the start of some examples of the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders, namely the Pharisees. So Matthew chapter 12, where we're looking at verses 1 through 14. I trust that you're there close to it. If you would pray with me one more time and uh, we'll dive in. Father, we pray that you would bless the hearing and the reading and the teaching of the word. I pray that your spirit would be among us. Uh, speaking through me clearly so that your people might be nourished and fed by the words and the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, teach us what you would have us to learn, we pray, for our good and for your glory. And God's people said together, Amen. Well, to begin this morning, I want us to begin to think about the concept of turning points in our life. Uh, Turning points, pivot points, if you will. You know, life is full of key turning points. You hear people say things like, the accident changed the course of her life. She was never the same after that. You might hear someone say, when he lost his job, that's when his life took a turn for the worst. Or maybe something like this, the the DWI was the wake-up call that he needed. And as far as I know, he's never taken another drink. Or Or people would say things like, I thought when the business failed that it would be the end of my life, but it turned out to be a real blessing in disguise. See, life, my life and your life are full of turning points. We we speak of turning points not only in life, but for instance in war. We speak of major battles that prove to be sort of the turning point in the war. So in the Civil War, of course, it was the Battle of Gettysburg. In World War II, it was the, the Battle at Midway. And so in, in life and in war, there are key pivot points, turning points, if you will. And as we turn now, as we make our way From chapter 11 into chapter 12, we're going to see that the events in chapter 12 are going to really be a key turning point in the life and ministry of Jesus. As opposition to Jesus, which Matthew highlighted in chapter 11, becomes outright rejection of Jesus in chapter 12. Now in chapter 11, we saw from Matthew three evidences of the Jews' pending rejection of Jesus. But as we move into chapter 12, we're going to move from the evidences of that rejection to five examples. To five examples that Matthew lays out for us in chapter 12 of Israel's rejection of Jesus. And four of those five examples uh, involve a group called the Pharisees. Now, if you've uh, been in church, if you're familiar with your Bible, you probably know of this bunch. Uh, four out of the five examples are going to be verbal boxing matches between Jesus and the Pharisees, which really ratchet up the tension between the religious leaders in Israel and Jesus, culminating in their decision to murder Jesus. And so it is a pivot point. The tide is going to turn in Jesus' ministry as we make our way into chapter 12. Now the first two examples we're going to see are going to be fights, verbal fights, over over Jesus' participation and actions on the Sabbath day. They're going to be fights over hunger on the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath. In verses 1 through 14, hunger on the Sabbath and healing on the Sabbath as we see 
two Sabbath controversies come to light in chapter 12. But before we jump into the story, I think we need to understand a little bit of the background regarding what the Sabbath day was for the Old Covenant people of God. See, the Sabbath and observing the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, was um, hugely important in the life of the Jews. See, the Sabbath, biblically speaking, was is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And it basically says that Israel, God's old covenant people, was to rest from their labors. People were to not work on the seventh day because God himself rested on the seventh day of creation. So it was basically a prohibition uh, against work on the seventh day. However, in Jesus' day, as we're going to see as we get into the text, um, the, the, the Jews had added rules of conduct concerning the Sabbath day that had become very detailed and very cumbersome. So just for instance, the the rabbi said that you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your house on the Sabbath day, or it would become work. For instance, you were said to not carry a load heavier than a dried fig on the Sabbath, or it would be considered work. You couldn't eat anything larger than an olive on the Sabbath day. Fires could not be lit or uh, uh, put out. Chairs could not, could not be moved, and so on and so forth. It went. And so significantly, just a note here, this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that we see is not repeated in the New Testament. All the other nine are, but the Sabbath is not. In fact, Paul in places like Romans chapter 14 says that a Christian can, can, has the freedom to honor one day above another or to treat every day alike. And so Sunday, my friends, is not a Christian Sabbath. We're just going to put that out there before we move into to the Sabbath controversies. It's not a Christian Sabbath. Early Christians met on, the, on Sunday because why? Well, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. We see it in Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, but even that was not commanded. And so, let's make our way into the text with the first Sabbath controversy. We see it in verses 1 through 8, uh, and it, it involves hunger on the Sabbath, and you'll see why in just a moment. So let's begin in verse 1. Matthew begins the story with the aggravation. The aggravation, starting in verse 1. At that time... Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Now, to me and you, this seems very uh, ho-hum. There's no story here. What's the controversy all about? See, it actually was legal for people to do that. No, that that wasn't Jesus' grain field, and it wasn't his disciples' grain field. And so we we may think, wait, they're stealing. Well, no, they're not really stealing. See, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, uh, God said for his law, for his people, that uh, that those who were poor or hungry or in need, that they could do this, that you could be walking uh, and, and find somebody's grain fields and you could pluck a head or two. And, and it was God's provision for those who were weary and needy in the nation. So there was nothing uh, immoral or wrong about what Jesus' disciples were doing here. The real question, the real aggravation, as we're going to see in verse 2, as we move from the aggravation to the accusation, was that they were doing this on the Sabbath day. They were doing this on the Sabbath day. Jesus' disciples were hungry. They picked and they ate. And the story quickly moves from the aggravation to the accusation in verse 2. When the Pharisees saw this, They said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful 
on the Sabbath. See, the accusation against Jesus' disciples was not stealing. It was his, uh, it was, uh, it was working on the Sabbath. And an accusation against Jesus' disciples was essentially an accusation against him. And so they wanted to know why they were in, at least their, their minds, breaking the law of God. But here's the question. Were they breaking the word of God? Were Jesus' disciples, by doing what they were doing, working? Well, clearly not. No, they weren't breaking the law of God in the Bible. What they were accused of breaking was the rabbinical and the pharisaical tradition, the added rules that helped the Jews understand, at least in their minds, what it meant to work and to not work. So I want to cite a reference here. The Talmud, which is one such source of rabbinical teachings, said this, and I quote, If a person rolls wheat to remove the husks, it is to be considered as sifting. If he rubs the head of wheat, it is threshing. If he cleans off the side adherences, it is sifting. If he bruises the ears, it is grinding. And if he throws it up in his hand, it is winnowing. So very clearly, the added rules that the teachers of the law had made clearly said, no, you can't do what Jesus' disciples did on the Sabbath day. It's, it's considered work. And so that is their accusation. But before, before we move on, I just want to point out something. What were the Pharisees doing in the fields that day anyway? I mean, why were they there? It just strikes me as odd, right? Jesus is walking around with his disciples, and they do this, and they're there, right? They are observing. They are watching. It seems as if they are watching in order to accuse, dogging his very footsteps, not to follow him as their, as their Messiah, but to criticize and to catch him. Well, how does Jesus respond to this accusation? Well, we see his answer starting in verse 3 and running through verse 8. The first reason that Jesus gives, in fact, he's going to give three reasons why what his men were doing was not, in fact, work, was not, in fact, the breaking of God's law. Three reasons, and the first reason is actually an illustration. It's an Old Testament illustration that Jesus uses that in his mind justified uh, what his men were doing. So let's pick up in verse 3. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. And so, Jesus illustrates with an example from the life of King David. When he was on the run from Saul and he entered into the tabernacle and he ate that which the law prohibited him to eat. And Jesus said he was not condemned. God didn't strike him dead. Haven't you read? Isn't it interesting? So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. These were learned men. These were religious leaders. They knew their Bible uh, backwards and forwards. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say... Haven't you read? I mean, haven't you read your Bibles, guys? It's like telling a brain surgeon, haven't you read your Anatomy 101 book? I mean, come on. Of course they had, and of course the Pharisees had as well, but they missed something. They missed the significance of this story. John MacArthur in his commentary explains Jesus' logic in this way. He says, if God makes allowances for his own law to be broken under certain circumstances for the welfare of his people... He surely permits purposeless and foolish man-made traditions to be broken for that purpose as well. 
Jesus says, haven't you read? Don't you know your Bible? David did something like this, and God approved it. But there's a second illustration that follows on the heels of the first, and it's found in verses 5 through 6. And it's the illustration of Israel's priests working on the Sabbath day. Notice verse 5. He says, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath? And yet are innocent. See, those Israel, though Israel's priests, they worked on the Sabbath, right? They offered sacrifices and they did all sorts of stuff in the temple, but very clearly, God did not hold them guilty of breaking the Sabbath. And so by application here, Jesus says, neither are my men guilty of breaking the Sabbath law. But then he says something that had to make um, them extremely angry. It had to raise the blood pressure in the hearts of the Pharisees. Notice what he says at the tail end of verse 6. He says, I I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Haven't you read in the law? The priests work, right? They desecrate the Sabbath. And I tell you that something greater is the temple than the temple is here. His logic is this. If the priests who serve in the temple, if their work is justified on the Sabbath, then his own ministry, his own service, his own current ministry, including providing for his disciples also was justified because he was the true temple of God. Friends, Jesus was claiming something significant here. He says, I am greater than the object, the place of worship in the Old Testament. See, I am worthy of worship. I am God. To close, he ends with one more reason, one more defense, if you will. Namely, that they had made the Sabbath day burdensome that they had gotten it all wrong, that they didn't understand God's intention in giving the Sabbath day. They had made it a burden rather than a blessing. Verse 7, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Here Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus simply means that God desires obedience and compassion from people more than simple ritual and sacrifice without obedience, right? Which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. See, the Pharisees and the other teachers of the law, they had made a day that God intended to be a blessing to his people, a day of rest, a day of worship, and a day of trust. Because unlike the pagans, they weren't supposed to work all the time. They had to trust God that if they took the seventh day off, that God would meet their needs. And so the Pharisees had taken this day of blessing and rest and worship and trust, and they had added so many rules and minutia that it was cumbersome. And Jesus here argues that, listen, your observance of the Sabbath actually leads people away from God's heart. See, in verse 6, Jesus made an audacious claim, I'm greater than the temple. I'm the object of worship, right? I'm greater than some temple. And in verse 8, he makes another spectacular claim. He says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that I am the Lord, I am the ruler, I am the king over the Sabbath. Why is that? Because he created the Sabbath. Because he is God incarnate, right? I am ruler over this day. I get to determine what is right and wrong on this day. I get to determine what is work and what is not work on this day because I made that rule. Like a parent who might say to their 
teenage son or daughter, son, I, this is my house. And so this is what? My rules, right? My house, my rules. Jesus is essentially saying that. This is my world. And thus it's my Sabbath. I'm Lord over it. You, consequently, are not Lord over it. Friends, as we pause from this first um, example, I want us to think applicationally for a moment. Because in stories like these, it's very easy for us to gravitate towards the hero, right? It's very easy for us to identify with the good guy in the story. Who, 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 who wants to identify with the bad guy in the story? We all want to see ourselves like Jesus. And we all want to see ourselves like the disciples, and that's all fair and good. But sometimes we need to pause and ask ourselves, are we like the bad guys in this story? Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, are we acting like them, the people that Jesus is condemning? Friends, we need to beware of the Pharisee in me. Because in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the most zealous of followers of God. They were the strictest. You could say they were the most conservative followers of God. Friends, evangelicals in America today, we're kind of like that, right? We're zealous and we're conservative and we want to follow God, right? Um, We need to be careful. We have some things that we can learn from these guys because, friends, we can be like them as well. So three, three ways that we need to beware of the Pharisee in me. Number one, Pharisees add rules to God's word. And they make those rules equal to God's word. Do you see how the Pharisees had done this with the Sabbath? They had made so many rules, and they said, if you break our rules, which were in addition to God's word, then you are breaking not their rules, but what? The very word of God, right? This is what Pharisees do, and we can be like them. Friends, let me ask you a question. Can Christians add their own rules to the Bible and then treat those rules as if they were rules from God? Can Christians do that? Yes, Christians can do that. We do do that on occasion. So it could be, say, it could it could relate to. Um, what you watch, so no movies at all, or no movies of a certain rating. And that's the Word of God. It could be, well, if you go the Baptist route, Southern Baptist route, it could be that dancing is a sin, or gambling is a sin. Does God's Word say that? No, it, it sure doesn't. It could manifest itself maybe in a dress code for, for men or, or for, for women. Friends, regardless, we must be very careful, very careful, not to add our own interpretations to God's Word and then elevate those interpretations, those rules, as the very Word of God. That's what Pharisees do. Someone in seminary once told me, and it stands in my mind. He said, friends, what you need to do is you need to speak when God's Word speaks, and you need to be silent when God's Word is silent. I think that's a good rule for Christians to follow. We should be very firm on the scriptures and what they say and not dilute it one iota. But friends, let's not be firm on that which the scripture is silent on. Number one, Pharisees add rules to God's word. But not only that, we we learn a second lesson about Pharisees from this text. And it's Pharisees watch for other people's sins more than they watch for their own. 
Did you see that in the life of the Pharisees? They were dogging Jesus and His disciples. They cared more about the sins, supposed sins in Jesus and His disciples than looking inward at themselves. Beloved, let me ask you, can believers get caught up in this same game? Can we do that from time to time? You better believe that we can. It's so much easier and so much more fun to look at other people's faults than to look at our own spouses. Maybe you are guilty of doing that, looking at your spouse's faults, their errors, when you yourself, everybody knows, even though it's painfully ignorant to you, that you have your own set of sins. You have your own set of foibles. Friends, we can do this to our spouses. We can do it to one another in the body of Christ. And Christians historically have the unfortunate tendency of looking not only at, a, at our own sins, but at looking at the sins of the outside world and wanting to make a big deal about their sins when we just sort of gleefully and willfully sort of brush our own struggles under the rug. Friends, beware of the Pharisee and me because they look out for other people's sins more than they do their own. And there's a third example Third principle that we can see from the Pharisees here. Pharisees, they care more about extra-biblical rules and traditions than they do people. They care more about their traditions than they care about people. A third mark of the Pharisee in me is when we care more about our own set of rules, our own personal or church traditions, than we care about flourishing of people. Let me ask you this. Can Christians get so caught up in our traditions and our rules, be it denominational or individual or otherwise, that we treat other people harshly and unlovingly because of it? Does that ever happen? Of course it happens. I recall the story of a, of a young woman who was invited to a youth group of a sort of a fundamentalist church. And, well, she wasn't aware of the expectations. And she wore pants instead of a skirt where the, the, the church had elevated the rule, well, to be modest means you must wear a skirt. And so the young woman went to youth group, and, and the youth leader um, invited her to leave. Invited her to leave, because she was not dressed according to, in his mind, the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Did that affect her view of Jesus negatively, possibly? I think it very well could have. Were the people of that church caring more about what Jesus calls sacrifice or mercy? Did they care more about tradition or more about people? Well, clearly they cared more about their tradition. Friends, when the keeping of our own tradition hinders or distracts us from the love of people, we must beware of the Pharisee in me. Well, there's one example that has come and gone. Hunger on the Sabbath. But there's a second, starting in verse 9 and It deals with healing on the Sabbath, starting in verse 9. The French novelist and playwright, Alexander Dumas, he was was well known for being hot-tempered. And one time he had a heated quarrel with a rising young politician. And so the argument uh, came to blows, and there was a, a duel that was inevitable you know, gun duel like they used to do it. And so, so both of them apparently were very good shots, and so they agreed to draw lots. And whoever drew the shortest lot would shoot himself. And so Dumas lost. And so with pistol in hand, as the story goes, he withdrew uh, into another room 
uh, and silently closed the door behind him. Well, of course, the rest of the people who were there observing sort of waited in gloomy suspense for the shot that would apparently end his career. At last, finally, the shot rang out, and the friends hurried to the door, and they opened it to find Dumas with a smoking revolver in his hand, to which he replied, Gentlemen, a most regrettable thing has happened. I have missed. (laughs) Well, friends, Jesus had won round number one, like the young politician, right? But Jesus, uh, the Pharisees like Dumas, they weren't ready to concede. They weren't ready to pull the trigger. And so round number two of the verbal boxing match uh, begins in verse 9 and 10 with what we'll call the case that is put forth to Jesus. Verse 9, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Okay. Friends, what's going on here, right? Jesus continues, he enters into the Sabbath, and lo and behold, there just happens to be a man who is there with a shriveled hand, and we're told by Matthew that, of course, the the Pharisees want to charge Jesus with working on the Sabbath, and so they ask him this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In other words, is it lawful for you to heal on the Sabbath? See, they knew that Jesus was a man of compassion, They knew that he was a good shepherd of the sheep and that when he saw this man in need, that he might very well use his power to heal. Now notice, they recognized the power of Jesus to heal. Did you notice that? They recognized it. They're using it against him. The the, the very power of Jesus to heal this man, which should have convinced them that he was Messiah, they rejected and they used it against him. Friends, this is a setup. This is a setup, right? Jesus knows it. He walks right into the ring, right into the lion's den, and he takes on his opposers head on. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, prior to this, Jesus had answered uh, by appealing to Scripture. But now he doesn't appeal to Scripture to answer their question. He uses plain old common sense. Yes, Jesus uses plain old common sense with the comment, starting in verse 11. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a a pit on the Sabbath, would you take hold of it and lift it out? And of course he knows the answer is yes. They would say yes. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore he draws a conclusion. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Very simple reasoning. Jesus says, Are human beings more important than animals? He asks. And their answer is what? They don't say it, but yes, they must concede. Okay, so, so when the sheep is harmed on the Sabbath, would you, would you take care of him? Well, they didn't answer, but the answer is yes. So then he says, why is it wrong for me to do the same to a human being, which is of infinitely more value, value than just a, a sheep? See, Jesus was the good shepherd, right? Jesus cared about his sheep, not the physical sheep, the, the human sheep. Therefore, he concludes that any activity done on the Sabbath to help people is not a violation of the Sabbath, he says. And then without fear, we move from the comment to the cure, as Jesus does what they are setting him up to do. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And so he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Friends, the healing once again demonstrated Jesus' power, uh, and notice how he healed. He healed with a word, did he not? He spoke the word, and something happened. 
Does that remind you of something you read all the way back in Genesis 1? I mean, all the way back in Genesis 1, God spoke. And creation came into being. Jesus is demonstrating his, his divine power as creator God. He spoke and it happened. It's a demonstration of his deity, of, of his divinity, of his messiahship. It's affirming his former statement that he is indeed Lord over the Sabbath. Now let me ask you a question. How should have these Pharisees responded? What was the, is the appropriate response here? Praise God, a man who is suffering is healed. Is that what we see? No. Wow, did you see what he just did? He must be divine. Is that how they respond? Nope, wrong again. So we move from the cure to the counsel in verse 14. And friends, this is the pivot point. This is the turning of the tide in Jesus' ministry right here in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. As one pastor put it, the shadow of the cross now starts to fall upon Jesus. And it's going to overshadow him throughout the rest of his gospel. This is a pivot point. The tide has turned. The decision to kill their king has been made. And yet Jesus is in complete control. He knows exactly what is happening. Because as we're going to see next week, he withdraws. He withdraws from them because the time for the culmination of the cross was not yet to come. Jesus is in control here, my friends. We'll close with this, a simple story. Two men once lived in a small village, and they got into a terrible dispute. They could not resolve it, and so they agreed to take it to the town sage. The first man went to the wise man, told him what had happened, his version of the story. And when he was done, the sage said, You are absolutely right. Well, the next day, the the second man unbeknownst to the first, um, goes to the sage. And he tells the other side of the story. And the sage responds in the same way. He tells the second man, you are absolutely right. Well, afterwards, the sage's wife had heard this and she scolded him. She said, those two men told you two different stories and you told them that they're both absolutely right. That's impossible. They both can't be absolutely right. To which the the sage turned and responded to his wife, honey, you are absolutely right. (laughs) Well, we've seen Jesus uh, fight with the Pharisees two rounds, and he's come out on top, right? Uh, and, And what the sage's wife said was true, right? Both the Pharisees and Jesus, they both can't be right. Jesus won rounds one and two, and so the bell is ringing. But friends, there are uh, two more rounds yet to come, and we'll see them next week. Um, Jesus was right, the Pharisees were wrong, and he, he, his death is being plotted by them. He's going to withdraw, and the story is going to continue next week. He's going to minister, he's going to preach, he's going to heal, because the cross has not yet come, not quite yet. Not quite yet. And by doing so, he's not only going to restore the Sabbath, as we saw in uh, controversies number one and two, but, but next week he's going to reaffirm the scriptures. He's going to He's going to fulfill messianic prophecy. And then we'll see rounds three and four, and we'll see if the Pharisees fare any better. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, and Lord, that you would help us to beware of the Pharisees 
in us. Because we, even as those who are believers in Christ, that we can have tendencies that are very similar to these religious leaders. And so we pray that you would work in our own hearts and our own lives, that we would hold your word high, and we wouldn't hold our tradition very high, that we would be more concerned about the indwelling sin that remains in our own hearts than the sin that remains in our brothers or those unbelievers that are outside of these walls. And Father, I pray that you would uh, be at work as well, that you would help us to care for people the way that Jesus cared for people and not allow our tradition to get in the way of that. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and God's people said, Amen. Would you stand with me as we close with a benediction? I'm going to read a benediction for this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17.